Charles Germain de St. Auburn wrote this in his classic reference, Art of Embroidery, in 1770, page 17. Almost all materials may be used in embroidery. Gold, furs, pearls, mother of pearl, cut marquisite, precious stones, even diamonds. Man's industry and vanity turn all of nature into a contributor. But these materials, however precious they be, only add to the whole if they are well placed. Distributed with taste, they add to the overall effect, cadence in shapes, the correct juxtaposition of large to small, of strong to weak, of soft to brightly coloured, especially of blank space and repose. In a word, a selected imitation of nature and the principles common to all the arts. Now, Frenchman Charles Germain de St. Auburn, 1721-1786, knew a thing or two about design and embroidery. He was the son of two professional embroiderers, eventually becoming a draftsman and embroidery designer to King Louis XV of France, no less. His words, though, seemed highly appropriate to this topic because you can use almost anything to embroider onto and with, as long as it works harmoniously and tastefully. So today's episode is about deep diving to unearth some of the more unique and unusual tools and materials used to create that selected imitation of nature used for embroidered decoration. So let's open our minds to necessity, time periods near and far, different cultures and beliefs, fashion trends, and just for fun, the purely eccentric. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the Art of the Needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Different cultures have used embroidery to portray symbols of cultural identity and important events for eons. But they would have had to have been using materials that were close at hand. That is what Mother Nature was able to provide. For instance, shells elaborately drilled were discovered stitched onto animal hides in Siberia, dating from around 5 to 6,000 BC. So the need to decorate clothing stretches way back into our ancient past. But what exactly did they denote? What did they mean? We don't know. 
but they were there for a reason and they were more than likely collected and used in their local environment or traded for other precious materials. Until trade became more prevalent and ever more prosperous, that was the only option open to them. Again, writing from 1770, St Auburn notes this on page 16 of his Art of the Embroiderer. There is hardly a nation that does not embroider with the different materials produced by its climate. So let's begin with some of the sewing tools our ancient ancestors would have used. Thorns, spikes, fish and animal bones, even the shaft of birds' feathers were crafted into early pins, used much as we would use them today, to attach, fasten or support. The early Greeks and Egyptians created ornamental pins made from precious metals, gold and bronze, some beautifully crafted. Wood, bone, even walrus teeth were referenced as being made into bodkins by the Egyptians as early as 5500 to 3500 BC, becoming far more ornate by the 18th century when they were made from steel, sterling silver and ivory. Some were even decorated with precious gems or monogrammed and set in beautiful velvet-lined leather cases. Awls have long been used by embroiderers to pierce holes through fabric, leather, skins and wood. Referenced in the Sanskrit language, suggesting that they may have been in use since 1200 BCE, but certainly in England and Germany since 900 CE. Made of wood with a steel shaft, by the 19th century these dainty implements were made from bone, silver or ivory. Early needles were made from bone, ivory or wood, but also included limbs of bats, fish bones, plant spikes, thorns or palm fronds. Early threads were often the sinews from animals, a basic necessity for the survival of our early ancestors to fashion clothing and coverings made from skins and furs. And this very helpful information came from the Nantucket Historical Association website and a blog written by Elizabeth Gilbert. Native American Indians used embroidery to decorate utilitarian or ceremonial garments. It's been suggested these people had limited resources. But was that really the case? Of course not. They made great use of the unlimited resources offered by Mother Nature in their embroideries to express both status and community, including skins, hair, teeth, feathers, felt, bark cloth and bird and animal quills, all enriched with the rich bounty of Mother Nature's amazing colour palette. The Native Americans made needles from porcupine quills. Moose hair was used for thread. 
The porcupine quill embroidery of the Native American Indians was unique, used to decorate dresses, shirts and moccasins with borders and flying designs in black, red, blue and shining white quills, some fringed with teeth, animal claws or beautiful shells. Women would sort the quills according to size, then dye them using natural plant dyes. Tamarack bark, spruce cones and berries produced reds, walnuts and wild grapes for blacks. Sunflower, cornflower, pine bark and willow root supplied the yellows and blueberries and larkspur produced shades of blue. The Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. has a fascinating collection of early garments and items worn and used by the Sioux Indians, embroidered with dyed moose hair and split quills of birds in their natural colours. I can just imagine the person tasked with making and decorating these beautifully crafted garments, totally in keeping with the beliefs of Charles Germain, a decent Auburn, but also lifting the art of his or her people to a higher level through the addition of embroidery, utilising materials sourced from their local environment. Native American bead embroidery had its origins with the arrival of European colonisers. The traditional patterns already existed. Some were from the quill embroidery previously mentioned, with bead embroidery becoming a means for Native Americans to hold on to their cultural identity. Over time, materials used for embroidery have included fabrics made from a diversity of natural plants. A backer fibre is created from a species of banana native to the Philippines and grown as a commercial crop in the Philippines, Ecuador and Costa Rica. Known also as manila hemp, this fibre has great economic importance for the harvest of its fibre extracted from the leaf stems, which before synthetics was a major source of high quality fibre that was soft, silky and fine, yet extremely strong. This traditional lustrous fibre was hand-loomed into various indigenous textiles in the Philippines, as well as colonial-era luxury fabrics. It's also the source fibre used to create cinema, the loosely woven, stiff material used for textiles and millinery. A backer cloth is found in museum collections around the world, including the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and the Textile Museum of Canada. Now it's mostly pulped to create specialised paper products such as tea bags, filter paper and banknotes. Piña, Spanish for pineapple, cloth is another traditional Philippine fibre made from the leaves of the pineapple plant which were widely cultivated in the Philippines since the 17th century, especially for weaving the lustrous lace-like luxury textile known as nippus fabric. 
The extraction and weaving techniques were directly adapted from the native weaving traditions for the abaca fibre. The fabric is characterised by its lightweight but stiff nature with a sheer appearance and smooth silk-like texture, often decorated with intricate floral embroidery. Favoured by the Filipino up classes for its light and breezy quality, ideal in the hot tropical climate of the islands, it's still predominantly used in Filipino traditional formal wear, table linen, bags, mats and other clothing items. This luxury fabric, deemed exotic and sumptuous was exported from the Philippines during the Spanish colonial period, gaining favour among European aristocrats in the 18th and 19th centuries. Notable royal users of the embroidered piña cloth includes a baptismal gown for King Alfonso XIII, a handkerchief given as a wedding gift to Princess Alexandra of Denmark and a petticoat and undergarment for Queen Victoria. The industry was destroyed in World War II and is now starting to be revived. Numerous examples of 19th century embroidered piña textiles are held in museum collections around the world and in 2018 the National Commission for Culture and the Arts and the Government of Aklan began the process of nominating Calibo piña weaving in the UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage Lists. Pearls. The concentric deposits of calcium carbonate in minute crystalline form produced within the soft tissue of living shelled mollusks have a prehistoric use. Certainly, the Chinese Han Dynasty, 206 BC to 220 AD, hunted extensively for saltwater pearls and it said pearls were the one attraction which drew Julius Caesar to Britain. Ancient Sri Lankan chronicles mention a thriving pearl industry, recording eight varieties of pearls. Pliny the Elder, 23 to 79 AD, praised the Gulf pearl fishery as the most productive in the world, and there are pearl references in religion found in Hindu, Hebrew, the Christian New Testament, and Islamic scriptures. Pearl embroidery is a form of decorative needlework that applies natural or cultivated pearls, a popular technique in European medieval and Renaissance periods for the embellishment of elite and religious garments. Bohemia was known for the production of applied pearl embroidery from the 13th to the 17th centuries. Designs are created by applying freshwater pearls of various sizes with added details of coloured silk or flax threads in early examples or gold threads in later ones. In 1683, six pairs of pearl-embroidered gloves were given by the Dutch government to the Ottoman Sultan Ahmed I, 1590-1617. 
1588 portrait of Sir Walter Raleigh, 1554-1618, painted by an unknown artist, depicts Raleigh in all the splendour he could muster. His doublet features pearl buttons, his black hose is decorated with rows of pearls, even his black sword belt is decorated with pearls, as well as his heavy fur-lined coat of black that has both straight and curved rows of applied pearls. And his final flourish is a double pearl earring. And of course, his queen Elizabeth I was herself a great lover and wearer of pearls, embroidered and otherwise. In 1983, Kenyan actress Lupita Nagonyo wore a long halter necked dress decorated with 6,000 white pearls in various sizes to the Oscar award ceremonies. Designed by Francisco Costa, the women's creative director for the Calvin Klein collection, the dress paid homage to the sea in its fluid and liquid drape. But wait, there's more to be gleaned from the sea before I finish. Fish scale embroidery, a novelty technique popular in 19th century Britain where they were stitched into designs for borders, mantle draperies, cushions, table covers, scarves and purses, all at negligible cost. Female carp, goldfish or perch had larger scales and were regarded as the most iridescent. Their scales worked onto silk, satin or velvet grounds, imitating flower petals, bird feathers and butterfly wings. The scales were steeped in water until soft and pliable when two small, small holes were pierced with a needle near the base of each scale. Sometimes the scales were artificially coloured with a mix of varnish and powdered colour before being stitched down. But this type of embroidery was only suitable where it would not come into contact with friction. And now on to Victorian England to finish. And this was a time that reflected their ongoing obsession with natural history, seen in their use of exotic goods from far-flung corners of the empire and the unusual array of embroidery materials available. A demand for insect jewellery and embroidery quickly pushed some of the most beautiful species to the brink. One story reported in the etymological news was of a woman who in 1891 strapped a diamond to the back of a live beetle and trained it to fly around her neck. Mm. Perhaps that story is best taken with a grain of salt. I certainly hope so. But in 1863, Godey's Ladies Book and American Women's Magazine, published in Philadelphia, reported this. The ornithological and entomological fevers, which broke out last spring, will continue with increased violence throughout the winter. 
Victorian fashionistas were investing in beetle wing embroidery and insect carapaces strung together like beads. Muslin gowns featured the embroidered iridescent green elytra of jewel beetles, flickering fireflies, dotted hairdos, live beetles were leashed to pins, weevils were enamelled with gold and tiny scarabs were glued to the petals of artificial flowers with springs under their wings so they'd tremble and quiver with life. Oh. Moths were perched on hairpins and faux insects were made of gold or silver. The entomological news again suggested this. Truly, a fashionable toilette is becoming a composite thing with dead birds and butterflies and Mexican bugs as jewellery held by golden chains. What was actually happening was that Victorians were growing more and more detached from nature, so they tried to recreate nature in their homes and on their person. Punch magazine satirises the fashion eloquently by suggesting this, that the reader is encouraged to deck themselves out in natural spoils, brooches made of hummingbird heads, beetles hanging from each ear, owl's claws tipped with silver serving as coat clasps, even going so far as to caricature the fashionable lady as an insectoid monstrosity. Art Amateur had a writer who imagined this with horror. A world in which wasps, hornets, caterpillars and cockroaches will all be allowed to nestle soon near the damask cheek of our fashionable beauties. The fashionable art of the coming period will have for its chief ornament a lobster looking around the brim or a mackerel sitting on its tail. I couldn't resist uh, including the Victorians. And how fascinating is the world of Mother Nature and the uses to which we apply her riches and how well some people write about them. Thank you so much for your time. This episode has been a bit of a journey, but a very interesting one nonetheless. There's more to come in 2022, so do stay tuned and do subscribe. Stitch Safari's now reached over 6,500 downloads, and that's all thanks to you. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Welp Magazine and listed in the top five textile industry podcasts as at Gen- uh, January 2022 by Feedspot. And I'm extremely grateful. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's also fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over there as well. And till the upcoming episode of Stitch Safari and our next exciting adventure into stitch, embroidery and design... 
Bye for now. Bye.